Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Hey, good morning, guys. How are you doing this morning? Hey, good morning to you as well. Yeah, uh, welcome to Man Challenge. Uh, If this is your first time here, uh, we're excited that you're here. If this is your second time here, uh, we just don't care about you. I'm sorry. Uh, My name's Grant. I work with the uh, men's ministry staff here uh, at Southeast, and we're we're glad you're joining us this morning at Man Challenge. Uh, And in our men's ministry at Southeast, uh, we uh, really want to help men develop Uh, a next step of faith. Uh, We want to help men develop a a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is, and we want to help our guys um, develop authentic and intentional male relationships, and those are some of our values here at at, uh, Southeast in this men's ministry environment. Uh, So after our teaching time today, we're going to split off and like break off into groups uh, for, for discussion. If you don't have a group, if this is your first time here, you can meet in the atrium. Uh, there's a table out there with a gigantic man challenge flag, and then we can help you get connected, uh, with a group this morning. Um, I I have a poll for you this morning. Uh, our men's staff has been debating, uh, about some of the demographic that we have here, uh, at man challenge. And the question was raised, how many of our guys at Man Challenge do you think carry a handkerchief? And some people on our staff thought that number would be really, really low. Other people thought it would be a little bit higher. Uh, so I'd like you to raise your hand if you carry a handkerchief on an average day. Okay, Mason Bramer was right. It's much lower than we thought. Good job, Mason. Okay. Uh, Right about now, uh, there's going to be a text going out to your table leaders for a tournament bracket challenge. This is a little bit of an impromptu idea, but if you want to be involved in a college basketball tournament bracket, you want to fill it out and be a part of the challenge that we're doing uh, with with Man Challenge, uh, your table leader will have a link to that bracket that you can fill out. Uh, Make sure you put your first and last name on there. The winner is going to get some sort of prize. We don't know exactly what that's going to be. Maybe we do. Uh, And then the loser will just be publicly shamed uh, up here uh, next week or whenever, I guess, after the tournament is over. Um, and speaking of college basketball, <laughs> that's the best transition I have. Uh, speaking of college basketball, our uh, speaker today, not a college basketball player, it's true, but a big fan, a big fan of college basketball. Uh, this is Ben Cross, and Ben Grant, is, everybody. is my boss. Uh, he is also the pastor of residency in theology here it's at true. Southeast. That's true. Can you help us understand what that means? Sure. But the biggest thing that means is that I lead our residency program here, which is called 215. Grant's a part of that. So we um, find young leaders who are called to full-time ministry and bring them here for a couple years. And they work at different ministries across all of our different campuses. Not all the campuses yet, but we're getting there. Uh, and work with us for a couple years doing ministry and growing in responsibility over time so that we prepare them thoroughly um, to do long-term ministry work. 
And then I also get to just teach Bible and think about Bible and work on doctrinal stuff a lot around here. And too. that's the theology portion of yeah. your, your job title. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I've had the opportunity to work with or not work with, but, uh, learn from Ben in the residency program. Uh, and I've experienced firsthand, he's a great teacher, great pastor, uh, and you'll experience that as he's teaching today. Uh, he's, you're also one of the most gentle uh, and approachable people I've ever met. Uh, ben is the type of person that could sit me down and fire me from my job and tell me that I'm terrible at it, and I would still for some reason want to give him a hug and say thank you afterwards. Uh, I would never do that to you, Grant. But if you do, I'll give you a hug okay, afterwards. Okay, good to know. I'll hold you to that. Well, yeah, good. Uh, so, can you help us understand a little bit about who Ben Cross is outside of Southeast? Sure, I can try. So, we have, I've been married to my wife for a little over 10 years now. We met in college, and um, she's incredible. Uh, we have a six-year-old daughter uh, who is some of the most fun I have. I just love hanging out with her. And um, she's just at a great stage of, you know, when I walk in, she still is running to the door and excited to see Daddy and just wants to sit on my lap a lot. She is like princess. So this, this is maybe a good glimpse into my life. In my office right now, the couch that's in my office is covered in glitter because my daughter came with me to work the other day and had to wear her, you know, print Sleeping Beauty costume to the office. And so there's glitter everywhere. There's glitter all over my car. That's just our life is full of glitter. That's, that's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then speaking of college basketball tournament, who are you rooting for when it comes to March Madness? Yeah, so I'm a, a big Michigan fan. Always have been. My family's originally from Michigan. So this is a good year for that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited for the Michigan guys to see how they do. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then one last question. Okay. More just a, an interesting theological question. How, because you're the pastor of residence in theology, <laughs> okay. these are the types of questions that we want to find answers to. Um, do you think that Jesus would have been good at basketball? Interesting. That's not typically in my doctrine conversation. I, so my gut would say, no, I don't think he would have cared because he came to seek and to save the lost. And to, you know. But I think I've, I've been trying to think about this recently, and I think he probably had more fun than we think he did mm -hmm. and was much more of a normal person than we think he was. So I think if he had lived in a culture like ours, that basketball was what he was, was what it was, he probably would have at least liked it. I don't Maybe he, not very good at it, but I don't he would have enjoyed He playing. certainly could have been good at it, right, you okay. would think. But I think the, the sandals would be limiting, don't you think? Yeah, I don't I know if anybody's so. tried to play basketball and saying, I don't think that would work very well. Yeah. So he probably was better than my gut says he was, mm -hmm. but I still think he probably wouldn't have been obsessed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Well, thanks for teaching today. Uh, we're going <laughs> to send you guys out into your group about uh, whether or not Jesus would be good at basketball. Yeah. No, I think... Yeah, I, I think similarly to you. I, I also wonder if he wouldn't want to play against Peter ever again. He'd never try to dunk on Peter uh, because Peter denied him three times already. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll pray for Ben, and then you can go ahead and... Uh, and then we'll all pray for you. Yes, okay. please. All right. uh, dear God, uh, I just thank you so much for allowing us to gather together this morning. Um, just to hear your word, um, to grow closer to you uh, through, through your word that you've revealed to us, God, but also to grow closer to other people who are filled with your spirit uh, and, and really just other people who are created by you. Um, Lord, I just pray for Ben, um, who, who has been just a, a great mentor and friend uh, to me, who, is, who has helped me to learn and understand uh, more about who you are, God, and who I am in light of who you are. 
Um, and I pray that for all the guys in this room, that as uh, Ben leads us through a text that might not feel super relevant or applicable to uh, each one of us in the room, or it might feel very relevant um, and it might hit home, I just pray that uh, you would work through Ben um, in a way that is uh, so powerful and um, so clearly your spirit working that um, that Ben uh, wouldn't get the credit for the work that's being done, but that you would, God. Um, yeah, God, I just pray that you'd work through it and help us to be changed uh, and molded more into your image. We love you, God. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Grant. Um, let me just say, as Grant's walking down, um, like we said, I get to lead our residency program that Grant's a part of. So let me just, uh, on his behalf, say, try to hang out with Grant. Get coffee with him. Pour into him. Love on him. Ask him how he's doing. I know um, the residency period, because I work with him pretty closely, you know, a lot of our residents move from pretty far away and uh, are building new family and new connections and stuff here. And Grant's doing an awesome job um, just jumping into ministry um, but I would just ask you guys, hang out with him, grab coffee with him, um, pour it into him. I think it would be good for him and hopefully a blessing to you too. Um, so open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be. I know you guys have been studying through the Sermon on the Mount here the past handful of weeks, um, which is maybe my favorite section of Scripture in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, it's kind of this weird relationship I have with this passage of Scripture. I don't know if you guys have anything like this where I love it. And I just, like I just told you, it's probably my favorite passage of Scripture. But also every time I read it, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm awful. <laughs> You know, I'm just like, I love this so much because it tells me that I'm awful. Like that doesn't work, but that's sometimes how it goes with scripture. Um, and this is one of those long sections of Jesus's teaching uh, where he says a lot of things that really step all over our toes. Um, some of it because he's holding a standard so high that it's hard to impossible to reach. Some of it because I think he's just painting a beautiful, perfect, full picture of what it can look like when you live God's way. Um, so I, I actually was thinking about this um, that so much of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I tend to think of it as like Jesus's inaugural address. I don't know if you guys have talked about this much, but that's kind of how I think of this. It's like Jesus has come to earth. He is the king of the world. Whether you voted for him or not, whether he's your guy or not, he stands up and says, hey, I'm the king of the world. And this is what it's gonna be like now that I'm in charge. That's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is. And I think there's a, probably some people here listening to him when he preaches this sermon and this collection of his sayings that are thinking, that's not what I wanted in a king, but it doesn't matter if you voted for him or not, he's the king. Like he's just kind of telling you the reality. And, and so I think so much of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, we need to be careful to know that this is not Jesus standing up and saying, hey, if you want to be loved by God, here's your list. That's not what this is. This isn't if you want to be in the kingdom of God, here's how you get there. That's not what this is either. But instead, this is just an explanation of what it's like now that Jesus is in charge. The way you get into the kingdom and become a citizen of it is not by obeying the inaugural address. The way you become a citizen of the kingdom is by grace through faith in Christ. And he invites you in and says, I'm now the king of the world. Let me tell you what it's gonna be like now that I'm in charge. You wanna live a full life? You wanna have the richest life. You wanna have the most blessed life. If you wanna live kingdom life to the full, you can be in, come here, be my children, accept my grace. Now let me tell you what's on the table for you and how good it can be. And that's kind of this exploration of the kingdom. It's kind of like, I was talking about my daughter earlier who's six and just the sweetest girl. One thing she's been into lately, which is so interesting to me. So I have a Super Nintendo 
if any of you guys remember those days. Love Super Nintendo, and that's about where my video game, uh, you know, acumen stopped, okay? This is the Super Nintendo back in the 90s or whenever that was. But I still have my Super Nintendo. It kind of works if you get the cords all right and, like, blow out the cartridge and, you know, hold your mouth right and put everything in and it works. And so I've got all my games and my daughter saw one day that I have an Aladdin game and I told you she's princess girl. So for her, she sees the Aladdin game and Jasmine must be part of it. This must be the best game that's ever been invented. So she wanted to play Aladdin. So we started playing that and she just watches me play it and thinks it's the best thing. Well, then she wanted to play Donkey Kong Country. I don't know if any of you guys know this game. Do you guys know the premise of Donkey Kong? It's, bit, it's like Mario, except instead of collecting coins, you collect bananas, right? Because he's a monkey. So that's kind of the gist of the game. Hang with me here. I hope this is helpful to you. I know it's silly. So I've been playing Donkey Kong. My daughter's obsessed. I mean, almost every day. She's like, Dad, can we please go upstairs and play Donkey Kong Country? And I'm like, what? A, you're a six-year-old girl. Why do you want to watch me play a video game from the 90s? She loves it. But I was thinking about, so here's where you got to hang with me. I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom of God and Donkey Kong. Here's why. In Donkey Kong, you're kind of going through the levels. You know, you just move from left to right. That's how sophisticated things were then. It's not too fancy. Left to right, at the right is the end. But on your way, there's bananas all over the place and you collect them. Now you can beat the video game. You can be in the video game without collecting any of the bananas. You don't have to. Like you can play Donkey Kong. You can win the whole thing and not pick up a single one. But if you want extra lives, you pick them up. If you want to kind of find the little bonus things, the banana trail will lead you there. Like there's these little things along the way throughout the game that help you experience the game more fully. Now you don't have to do all of that in order to play. You just turn on the power to play. But if you want to play it more fully, there's things you can do. I think the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like that. It's a silly illustration, but maybe it'll kind of bring your mind up. It's helped me that you don't need to collect all the Sermon on the Mount stuff to be part of the game. Jesus says, come to me by grace through faith and I'll invite you into my life. You can be in my family. If you want to be part of my family in the fullest way, in the best way, if you want your life to reflect Jesus in the best and richest way, if you wanna get the most out of it, then I think listen to how Jesus describes life at its best in the kingdom. This is an invitation to us. It's not condemnation for us. Is that making sense? I think that's helpful with the Sermon on the Mount, that he's leaving a trail for us to follow of a full, rich life that looks exactly like the kingdom of God ought to look. So that's what he invites us into. So our passages today are kind of a continuation of that, of Jesus teaching about here's what it's like when you live fully in the kingdom, when you let yourself fully experience the life that God has intended for you. And these verses are part of that. Now, like Grant said, some of these passages, uh, these verses we're gonna read today, maybe like, that's a little weird. That's a little, like, I haven't thought about that in a while, or I don't want to think about that. These are kind of a little different maybe than we tend to think. These are different topics. One of them is especially than we tend to think about but I think if we can keep in mind, this is Jesus lifting up for us. This is a full life in the kingdom. If you wanna live your life well, like Jesus, um, here are ways to do it. Now, one thing I wanna do today as we work through our passage, we'll be in verse 31 and following of Matthew chapter five, Matthew five, verse 31 and following. One thing that's interesting about this passage that I wanna to try to do today, typically when we teach through scripture, um, it seem, it, it, most often there's kind of some general truth or a general principle that's kind of evident on the surface there. You'll read a big story and say, okay, wow, Jesus is powerful over a storm, for example, right? This is a general truth. Jesus has power over, over creation. And then what we'll do when we teach and preach is kind of work to more specific applications for us. 
But today what I want to do is Jesus actually gets very, very, very specific. Like he's told us, this is life in the kingdom of God, my inaugural address now that I'm king of the world. This is what it's like. And he starts giving examples that are very, very specific. So what I want to do today is kind of explore his specific examples and make sure we understand what he's saying because he's talking about things that we don't normally talk about in ways we don't normally talk about them. So I want to talk about his specifics, but then I actually want to pull us back and say, okay, from this specific example Jesus gives, what's the general principle that we can draw for us living as citizens of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So kind of a reverse engineered sermon a little bit from specific to general. So that's what we're gonna do. Um, so let's read in Matthew 5, starting in verse 31, and uh, we'll see what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 31, here's what he says. It has been said, in other words, you've read like in older scriptures or other places, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That would be like a written piece of paper that says I'm divorcing you for this reason. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, this is a hard teaching. So let's explore what Jesus meant here specifically. First of all, he says, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. Uh, where Moses is kind of going through the law that God gives, you know, back in the Exodus and wilderness wandering days. And he gives a bunch of those laws of how the society is going to work. And one of the things Moses said there in Deuteronomy chapter 24, from God, Moses was conveying from God his law. One of the things he said was, basically, when you get married to a woman and she displeases you for some reason, here's how you divorce her. You just write up a certificate, say why you're divorcing her, and you can walk away. So that's what Jesus is quoting here. You've heard it said that this is how it works. Now, there was some disagreement even during Jesus' time about exactly what that law meant. A lot of people were kind of in the business of figuring out exactly what do these things mean so we can follow them well and or find loopholes for them, right? So the law was, if you want to divorce your wife for, for, because for some reason she's become displeasing to you, is what the English says, then write up a certificate. Now, if you look at the Hebrew of that word, which I know you all have done already, right? If you look at the Hebrew of that, um, then it, it really has strong connotations of like, if, if she has been sexually unfaithful to you. But some rabbis, even in Jesus' day, taught that it wasn't just about that. It was basically if a man was displeased with his wife, really for any reason at all. Some rabbis went so far as to say if she cooked breakfast wrong, anything like that, then you could divorce her, just write it up, tell everybody why, and it's fine. And the man basically goes free. And the woman has to suffer the effects of having been divorced. I mean, the man kind of goes free. And, and the Jewish law wasn't the only law in which that was the case. In most ancient cultures, that was kind of the case. That if men uh, wanted to divorce their wife, they were more or less allowed to. And the wives just kind of had to deal with it. And men got off free. Now, even in Jewish law, there were, some, there were a lot of... Um, conditions to protect the dignity and value of women in that, but it still was an ancient culture that, you know, some of those things would make us pretty uncomfortable today. The Jewish law was more advanced, or, you know, in some ways than other ancient cultures, but still a tough situation, especially for women. So here's the first um, specific principle I want to zoom out and make a little bit more general for us that I think Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. It's important for us to grasp. Here's the first one, is the accountability of men. The accountability of men is the first big principle I think Jesus is drawing out in the Sermon on the Mount in this teaching. The accountability of men. 
Because like I said, in, in all ancient cultures, even the Jewish law had it to some extent. Men could kind of come and go as they wished in marriages, more or less, and women suffered the consequences of it. But here in this passage, notice how Jesus says this carefully. It says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So he's saying, if in your marriage there's sexual immorality, that's a different conversation. Set that aside for now. But in any other case, men, if you wanna walk away from your wife, then you make her the victim of adultery. You see kind of the subject of that sentence? He's not saying, men, if you walk away, even in bad circumstances, then you get to go away and your wife has to deal with it. No, he's saying, you caused this, men, if you walk away. This is different wording. This is different specifics than we've heard before in other ancient laws. And I think Jesus is trying to draw out, men, you cannot just do what you want. You cannot just get out of commitments and let everybody else suffer for it. You're responsible for your actions. I think Jesus is specifically drawing out, men be accountable, men be accountable. So, uh, so in this text for this room today, if we can just zoom out and talk about the accountability of men in these relationships. In marriage relationships specifically, right? This is what Jesus is addressing. That men, I think we have a responsibility if you're married to navigate your marriage relationship with faithfulness, with integrity, with commitment. And Jesus gives this, this kind of you know, condition here. If there's sexual immorality, that's a different kind of conversation. The Bible does say if there is sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage, that divorce in God's eyes is allowable. But I think the whole of the biblical witness still points to if reconciliation is at all possible, that's the goal, that's what we pursue. So Jesus is saying, if something like that has so broken your marriage covenant that you need to have conversations about making a change, we can have that conversation. Otherwise, Jesus would say, you can't just walk away from a commitment, either party. And specifically here, I think he's emphasizing, men, you be responsible for your actions. Men, you can't just walk away. Men, you are responsible for your actions. Something I think about a lot, um, is the term spiritual leadership. I think men are called to spiritual leadership. And let me just say, this is not just about marriage. Uh, this is about men taking responsibility for the roles we have in the world and in our lives and in our spheres. And I think about that phrase, spiritual leadership. Do you guys hear that phrase much? Have you been in church much as a man? I think we, we get kind of told that phrase, called that you're a spiritual leader. Be a spiritual leader in your family, in your home, in your groups. Be a spiritual leader. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But I think something that gets kind of confused sometimes is we hear that word leadership and we think authority. That's what I think at least. Be a spiritual leader, that means I have to take some authority and kind of be in charge of some things. And you guys know, even just in your gut probably, that that can be misconstrued pretty badly if we're not careful, right? I think the better word for spiritual leadership is not authority, but accountability. I think the better word is accountability. And I think when God calls men to lead, when God calls men, not, you don't even have to be called to be a leader. As a man, you have leadership in different spheres. As a human being, we have leadership in different spheres. And I think the way of leadership in the way of Jesus is to be accountable for our actions. To know I have a responsibility, I have an important job to do, I have, I have a presence to convey. I have people to take care of and to love. And I will be held accountable for how well I do that. And I think if, if my lens with my family, if my lens with my job and the people that I oversee at work, if my lens with my, with my friends is accountability and not trying to take leadership authority, but I'm accountable for how I faithfully enter these relationships and I'm accountable for how I faithfully love and serve. I'm accountable for how I hold my friends accountable. 
I'm accountable for those things. That's leadership in the kingdom of God. And so I think in this passage, in this verse, if we can move from that specific teaching where Jesus is talking about how divorce works and tells us, elevates the value of marriage and says, you cannot just walk away from a marriage because you changed your mind. Like that's a difference in teaching that Jesus makes from the society of his day. You can't just walk away from marriage because you changed your mind. But then he also, I think, generally is saying, and men, hey, I'm talking to you. In your marriage relationships and in general, be accountable for your choices. Be accountable for your actions. Be responsible for what you do. And when you're held accountable at the end, I hope we've built in processes of accountability throughout so that we're not surprised when God looks at us and says, hey, I put you in influence over all of this. How'd you do? I'd rather be asking myself that question and have people ask me that question along the way. So I think Jesus is pulling out the accountability of men, specifically in the divorce context, but in general, and saying, hey, be responsible for your actions. How can you lead with accountability in this world? Let me just ask you this question along these lines. So, so for those of you who are married, this again specifically applies. For those of you who are not, I think this generally applies. When was the last time, this is kind of the accountability question maybe from this verse. When was the last time you said you were sorry? When was the last time you said you were sorry? I think that's so much of what this verse is about. If we can kind of zoom out to a general spiritual biblical principle. When was the last time you said you were sorry? Because you're responsible for your actions. And I don't just mean, here's how, here's how this tends to look for me. Either I can, I'll do that like kind of sarcastic, well, sorry, you got upset. And like, that's not an apology, right? Or the other thing I do, this is, this is a weakness of mine, is I'll get so uncomfortable if I think somebody might be upset or I might have wronged somebody or if my wife seems like she might be a little bit upset, that I'll be so quick to be like, I'm so sorry, what happened? Like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, stop being mad. That's basically what I'm getting at. I'm not actually sorry, I just don't want you to be mad. That's how I tend to say sorry most of the time, either like, well, or just freaking out and nervous. When was the last time though, I don't know how that looks for you, when was the last time for you that you really looked somebody in the eye and said, I am sorry that I did blank. Will you forgive me? I don't know about you guys. For me, that's really hard. I think for a lot of men, that's really hard to just own it and be accountable. So I just wanna ask you, wrestle with that today. When was the last time you really said you were sorry? That's one specific thing I think we can take from this text where Jesus is in general saying, men, you're responsible for your actions. Men who are married, do not flippantly walk away from your marriage. Men who have made a commitment, you stand by that commitment. And if you're gonna act flippantly, you will be held responsible. So let's just start apologizing and being responsible now. I think that's the life Jesus is inviting us into in the kingdom. You wanna live in the kingdom. It's a life of accountability. It's a life of apologies. It's a life of being responsible for your actions. Uh, here's the second thing I think he says from, these, from this same section here. Again, we'll kind of keep exploring Jesus's teaching on divorce here. The second big principle I wanna draw out from this though is similar to the first and related. So we talked about the accountability of men, which I think is important, particularly for this room. Secondly, the responsibility of relationships. The responsibility of relationships. Again, really similar, <clears throat> really similar, but I think Jesus drills down a little more and, and gives us um, something we have to think about and work on. If we wanna live a full kingdom life, he says, this is what it's like. So he says, this is verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. We talked about that, that, that like the responsibility is on you. If you make these actions, it makes somebody else suffer these other effects. You make her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Um, so let me just talk through this a little bit. Like I said, in Jesus's day, there were a couple different teachings about how exactly this worked. You know, some people were real conservative about it. Some people were real flippant about it and you can kind of get divorced for any reason. Um, I think what Jesus is saying here, uh, because I think a lot of people get hung up on this. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And it's like, okay, so if I married somebody who used to be married before, then that was adultery? Does it keep being adultery? Am I like stuck in that? What if I was married and got divorced? Even if it was for sexual, like, but I wanna get remarried, can I, is that adultery? Does it continue to be adultery? And I think a lot of people will teach if there's any kind of relationship after one or the other or both have been married, that you are now in the state of adultery and continuing to commit adultery. I think a lot of people teach that and it can be a very um, condemning kind of teaching. I don't think that's what Jesus is after here. I do think Jesus is trying to elevate the value of marriage in a really big way. And I do think Jesus is trying to elevate the weight of divorce in a really big way. But I know at, at, in a room with this many people, in a room with not very many people, you guys would know, that this teaching is probably hitting home, hitting real close to home for a lot of us. We're gonna wrestle, you're gonna wrestle with how does this affect me? What do I do? What if I've done this? If I've already remarried, what does that mean for me? Here's, here's what I think, here's how I would kind of summarize and talk around Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage here. And if you also, I would also encourage you to read Matthew 19. Jesus talks about this also. Uh, similar kinds of principles that he explores there. I think what Jesus is trying to say is not so much give us the conditions for the rules we need to follow so that we technically don't commit adultery. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about at all. The Sermon on the Mount is always about, hey, I know you've got lots of rules. Let me go deeper to what your heart is like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is as a whole. So I don't think Jesus here is trying to give us a list of conditions for ways that you can and cannot avoid adultery in a remarriage situation. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, men, because again, he's specifically drawing out men here in a culture where that was not done. And I think he's speaking to them, men, you're responsible to not just flippantly cast women aside. Because if you do that to them, you have caused them to be treated as if they had committed adultery and they didn't. But you caused them to be that way. So you can't just flippantly walk away from a woman like that in the marriage. Man, you gotta be responsible for your actions. I think he's saying here, you can't, we can't just have a society where people are getting married and getting divorced and getting remarried and getting divorced and getting remarried because then whose commitments mean what? And does your word count for anything? And, and I think a lot of you would know whether in your personal life or from parents or people close to you, we all probably have a story of the weight of divorce and the way it affects people and us and the way it harms relationships. It's a heavy, awful thing. And so that's, I think, what Jesus is talking about here. He's not giving us a checklist of how to avoid or not avoid committing adultery accidentally, technically towing the line. I think Jesus is saying, hey, everybody listen up. You can't just enter a marriage and leave a marriage flippantly. This is a really big deal. So much so that he brings in that A word, that adultery word and says, if you're just gonna walk away from a marriage, then you're starting to enter adultery territory. If you're not taking this seriously, you made a commitment, keep that commitment. There's responsibility in relationships. Your actions affect other people in any relationship you're in. In marriage, in a really intimate and intense and everything connected way, but in all of our relationships, in your man challenge table, with your friends, you may not be married. In your man challenge table, in your friendships, in your relationships at work, in your relationships with your family, 
In all of our relationships, our actions affect other people and we need to be responsible in our relationships. You can't just decide to do what works for you and expect that it's not gonna affect other people in a big way. That's the general thing I think Jesus is saying here. And he gives the specific of marriage to say, hey, in marriage, unless there is sexual unfaithfulness, you stay married, you work it out. If there is, then we need to talk about it as a community. But I think Jesus is pulling out and saying, in your relationships, you're responsible to one another. In your relationships, you can't just act selfishly. So for those of you in this room, let me just kind of give a, a, a word. For those of you in this room who uh, have divorce and remarriage as part of your story or divorce as part of your story without remarriage, let me, let me just say that Jesus does take that very seriously. I don't think you need me to say that. I think you know, I think you feel it. It's heavy, it's difficult in ways that I can't fully understand and appreciate. But let me also give you this word of hope that Jesus is not saying, certainly in this passage and in the whole of the biblical testimony, that if you have been divorced and remarried or if you've been divorced without remarriage, that you are now in some category of unforgivable sin or that you're now living in some state of distant from God relationship that can never be redeemed. That's not the biblical teaching. That's not Jesus' teaching here. Jesus' teaching here is, this is a serious commitment and a weighty thing and your relationships have ripple effects far beyond yourself. Do not act selfishly. Be responsible in your relationships with the way they affect one another. That's the teaching here in principle. So I would say for those of you who are married, you'd be committed, you'd be faithful, you be responsible with that relationship because if something happens to harm it, you know the ripple effect that will have. And Jesus would say, this is a really important relationship. For those of you who are single, let me speak to you for a minute. In that other passage in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about divorce, remarriage, the importance of marriage, all that stuff, he then goes on to talk about singleness for a little while. And Jesus actually says, some of you, uh, he talks about eunuchs, which was kind of a forced state of singleness, but, but I think it applies to singleness as a whole. Jesus says, some of you are, singleness because, are single because you chose to be. Some of you are single not by your choice. And my guess is for those of you in the room who are single, you fit into one of those two categories because those are the only two, right? Either you're single because you want to be or you're single and you don't want to be. But what I want you to know from that passage in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about this, is he's, he talks about the value of it and says, you don't have to be married to be able to handle your relationships responsibly. And you certainly don't have to be married to be important and valuable and impactful in the kingdom of God. A full life in the kingdom does not hinge on marriage. A full life in the kingdom hinges on your responsibility in your relationships, your accountability to one another, your faithfulness to the call of Jesus in general. So let me just tell you, for those of you who are single, and I'm talking a lot about divorce and remarriage and the specifics and all that stuff, don't check out because Jesus values just as much managing your singleness and those relationships with integrity and with faithfulness and with responsibility. And Jesus has value for you in that relationship too. So in all of these things, he calls us to responsibility in our relationships. Here's, here's a question I wanna ask you in this. I think as we think about our relationships, whether it's marriage, whether it's other things, and we're trying to be responsible and knowing that our actions affect other people, let me just ask you this question. How is your selfishness affecting those close to you right now? How is your selfishness affecting those close to you right now? And we've all got an answer to that question. If you'll be honest enough with yourself to sit with it, if you'll be honest enough with yourself to feel the discomfort of it, how is your selfishness affecting those close to you right now? I know it is. So I think we need to wrestle with that. 
And that's a question, by the way, let me just say again, you don't have to be married for that question to apply, right? How is your selfishness affecting those close to you right now? Uh, And let me say one other thing on this teaching, because again, I think it's just important, and I know it hits so close to home for so many, that this teaching on divorce is a difficult teaching. It's a weighty teaching. It's supposed to be weighty. I I don't want to take the weight off of it. Jesus elevates the value of this in a big way. It's weighty. It matters. It's heavy. We need to care about it well. But I want to say that this is not a teaching of condemnation. This is an invitation to us. Just like all of the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a teaching of condemnation to say, if you do this wrong, you're out. This is a teaching of invitation to say, if you want to live in the kingdom, let me show you how good it can be. Be responsible in your relationships. Be accountable in your relationships. And when you do that, of course you'll mess up along the way. Of course we'll have sin along the way that we need to confess and repent. But the Bible is clear that no sin is beyond God's ability to forgive, short of blaspheming against him for all time. Anything else we do, any of these things in our relationships, any of these things in our past are not outside God's ability to forgive. So do not let this be a teaching of condemnation to you. This is a teaching of invitation to say, I'm inviting you into the kingdom to a full life. Explore what it could be like for you to be responsible and accountable in your relationships. That's the invitation of Jesus. Let's move on to this next section. And this is our last section. So we're gonna look at verses 33 through 37. And he changes topics. So again, another specific example of what life is like in the kingdom. We'll explore that and then pull out a little bit for us. So Matthew 5 and verse 33, here's what Jesus says. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, I'm sure you guys spend a lot of time in your free time talking about oaths and how you make them. Uh, So this is something that we're all very familiar with, right? Let me explain to you a little bit of the context of this in the ancient world. So Jesus says here, um, you have heard it said, don't break your oath, but especially, I added that word especially, I think that's the sense of what he's saying, don't break any of your oaths, but make sure you fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So let me explain what he means by that a little bit. Back in that day, like in ours, if you really wanted to emphasize something, you would kind of add stuff to it, right? Like, no, really, I mean, like, I'm I'm serious. You got to hear this. Like, I I absolutely mean it, 100% true. Like, when I put that many prefaces on stuff, you're probably thinking, why do you have to convince me to believe you, you know? Like we, but we do this, they did the same. But often what they did then is they attached spiritual power and authority to those things. So when they would kind of swear, but like, I promise you I'm gonna pay the bill by Friday. They, they might say something like, I swear on the gods of my fathers. Or they might say something like, by, by Baal who is the God of this region. I will pay you by Friday. Like they would invoke the name of these spiritual powers or gods to say, if I break my promise, they're gonna judge me for it. That's how much I mean it. And they would make these oaths on a bunch of different things all the time. In another part in, in um, Jesus's ministry and Jesus's teaching, he talks about like, uh, he, you know, he even says it here. Um, he talks about it later too, but he even says here, like don't swear by heaven, don't swear by Jerusalem. Like people would kind of make up all these like, what are ways, like things we could swear on that have different values? And they would like rank the value of different things you could swear on by how serious you were about what you were promising to do. And there was this whole scheme of it, which seems a little weird, but again, there was like even this spiritual authority to it. 
that it was, uh, I, I would call on certain gods or certain ancestors or certain forces to confirm my promise. And that's how much I mean it. If I break my promise, then they're going to deal with me. And so Jesus here is saying like, listen, there's this saying you guys have like, yeah, keep all your promises. But especially if you make a promise and call on the name of the Lord, you better keep that one because he'll judge you. That was kind of the conventional wisdom. That was like the highest on the hierarchy. And Jesus says here, don't even do that. Because for one, this is basically, this is my summary. Because for one, if you start swearing on a bunch of other stuff anyway, who created it? Who owns it? Who runs it? You're talking about God anyway, <laughs> right? That's one thing. For another, Jesus says, if you have to do all that stuff, then are you really trustworthy? And this even goes back to this, that previous section, right? On divorce and remarriage and being married. If you say you're married and you're gonna be faithful and you break it, then... I, it's going to be hard to trust you next time. And again, there's grace in that. But here he's saying the same thing. If you're going to put so many qualifiers and caveats on what you're trying to say and try to make us believe you, why are you working so hard to be believable? Why don't you just be believable? I think that's Jesus's invitation here. Can you imagine a world, uh, and it's called the kingdom of God, by the way. Can you imagine a world where when people told you they would do something, they just did it? How great would that be if people answered their emails, right? Can you imagine a world where people just did what they said they would do? Can you imagine in yourself, if you really had that complete integrity to know, I will do what I said I would do. And if I tell you I'll do it, you can trust it. And I don't have to heap up all these big promises. I said, yes, that means yes. Can you imagine that world? how nice that would be, how trustworthy that would be, how fulfilling that would be. That's the invitation Jesus makes here. What if we had a world where people just were trustworthy? So let me talk around this again a little bit more because this oaths thing is a little weird for us. Um, we don't typically make oaths sworn by the gods of Canaan, you know, or whatever. I, I don't typically swear by the gods of whatever to, that I'm gonna keep my word on things. But let me, let me just explore a couple kinds of things we say and say maybe there is some spiritual stuff going on. Let me just talk about it and see what we think. So if you guys ever said, I say this a lot, you guys ever said something like this, I would bet you a million dollars that I will get it done. For one, I don't have a million dollars. Not true. For another, why do I have to tell you that? Why don't I just do it? And that, that may sound like a silly and harmless thing. Like I bet it's going to get done. I bet she won't do it. I, whatever it is. But you know what that is? Essentially, if we're gonna put that in ancient terms, that's swearing by the power of the God of money. That's what we're doing, right? And that feels weird for us. We don't normally talk that way. I just wanna draw attention to it and say, man, examine in yourself. If you feel like something's so important to say, I will bet you a thousand dollars. Again, for one, will you really? And for another, why do you have to invoke the power of money to confirm your word? That's in ancient terms, that would be called idolatry. And so I think we examine that in yourself. What are the things that you call on to confirm your word? Chances are you have some worship in your heart towards that thing. Uh, let me talk about another one that we say a lot. On my mother's grave, right? Or I know my grandma would say things like that. Now where that comes from, now I'm, again, this is an invitation, not a condemnation, okay? I just, wanna, I just wanna bring up some things and say, let's think about what we're doing when we say them. I think when we talk about things like that, it seems like I'm just talking about how much I love those people. It seems like it's really important to me. I'm just trying to emphasize my word and how much I mean it. 
But if we're going to put it in ancient terms, what you're doing is swearing by the God of family and saying, my family is so important to me that you know I'm trustworthy because I'm invoking their name. Like, well, that's a kind of, that's invoking the God of family and saying that that has power to do something that my word just doesn't have. What Jesus is inviting us into here, those are just a couple examples I thought of that maybe bring this text to relevant world today. I just wanna invite us to examine the things we say and talk about because I think they actually have more effect than we realize. And they're conveying something about our heart that we may not realize. So I don't know what those things might be for you, but, but check that in you and say, if I feel this need to kind of exaggerate or make these big statements, what is that conveying about the state of your heart that you really put your trust in? Because I think that's what Jesus is calling out here. And I think he's inviting us to a life and to a world of just trustworthiness and just honesty and just being faithful. Here's, here's kind of the principle, the language I would put to this one here. Um, so we talked about the accountability of men. We talked about the responsibility of relationships. Here's the third one, the authority of integrity. The authority of integrity. Don't you notice in yourself or in people around you that when you really see someone with integrity, don't they have authority in a room? Like if somebody really is a man of their word, they've got authority in that room. If somebody really lives out what they preach, I'm gonna listen to what they preach. There's authority in integrity. And so I wanna say, rather than, I think this is what Jesus is inviting us into, rather than trying to find authority in money or family or gods or whatever, or in just heaping up these promises, what if we just had enough integrity that my life had authority? And when I say yes, I mean it. And when I say no, I mean it. And when I say I'm gonna be home on time, I mean it. What if we had a life like that? There's authority in that kind of integrity. And I think Jesus is inviting us into having a life like that where we don't have to call on other authority somewhere else, but you just have it because you mean it and you live it out. And it happens through you all the time and your word and your actions line up. Have you noticed about that? about integrity, about this being a man of your word kind of thing. Have you noticed how hard it is to build that and how long it takes and how quickly it goes away? Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. Like I could be home on time. I could be home when I say I'm gonna be home 99% of the time. And then one day when I'm not, or two days when I'm not, then it feels as if I'm never home on time, right? Any of you guys live that? And it's frustrating, but that's the reality. When my integrity has cracks in it, I lose the authority of my word. And so I think Jesus is inviting us into a way of life that says, I will do what I said I would do. I will mean it when I say yes. I will mean it when I say no. And I don't have to heap up other kinds of authority and call on other people to validate what I'm saying because I live what I say and I do what I say and you can trust me. And there's authority in that kind of integrity. And I think Jesus is inviting us into that. So let me just ask you, how much weight does your word carry? How much weight does your word carry? When you sit in a room, when you sit with your family, when you sit at work and you say you're gonna do it, when you say you mean it, when you say no to something, how much weight does that word carry? How much weight does that word carry? And, and I would just ask you maybe what's something you can do to add a little more weight to that today? What's something you can do to add a little more weight to that today? And I think as we do that, and as we live a life of integrity, it builds on itself. And then we can stand with this kind of authority and say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, living a full life, and I mean what I say. And there's so much power in that. There's so much leadership in that. There's so much value in that, that helps create the kind of world Jesus is talking about here in the kingdom of God. That's what he's inviting us into. 
So from these two passages that are kind of disconnected and don't fit each other super well, but kind of do, Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom of God and inviting us into what that could be like. And I think he's saying, if you want a full life in the kingdom of God, it is gonna be full. And it's gonna be full of accountability and apologies and being responsible for your actions and knowing that my actions affect other people and I'm responsible in my relationships. And it's gonna be full of times when your integrity is on the line and those little choices that add up and give weight to your words. And Jesus is inviting us into that kind of life and saying, hey, you can be in the kingdom because I love you, because I died for you, because I paid for you. Now let's live out this full life. It's better, it's good, it's strong. Come live the life of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. And I wonder what today, what today can you do to live more fully in the kingdom of God like that? Let me pray for you and then you can discuss. God, I'm grateful for your word and even passages like this that aren't things we normally talk about or think about or even want to think about sometimes. But I'm grateful that in your word, there's power. Um, You said that your scripture won't return to you without accomplishing the purpose you sent it for. So I pray that you would accomplish the purposes in our lives that you sent out your word for today. God, I pray that your word would be living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and penetrate to divide our soul and spirit and our joints and marrow and judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart and lay everything bare before you so that we can be men more of our word and men more of accountability and responsibility. God, I pray that your word today would really be God-breathed and God-empowered and be useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that these men of God would be thoroughly equipped for the good works that you have in store for them because I know that's what you made them for. Um, So God, be in this room today, be in these groups today, be in our minds and our hearts today to make us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. It's in his name we pray. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media. 